This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my flagship podcast, Everything Voluntary, where I seek to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. Hello, my name is John Hasness. I'm a professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business and the Georgetown Law Center, and I'm at Reason's headquarters in Los Angeles, and I'm here to talk to you about a familiar and conventional argument for the government, for government regulation of the marketplace. It's usually referred to as the market failure argument. I want to suggest to you that there may be some flaws with that argument. So let me begin by describing the argument. The argument goes like this. Markets are generally a good thing. When people buy and, trade, buy and sell and trade and interact with each other on a market, then both parties are better off after the exchange than before. I give someone something that I want less in return for something I want more. The other party does the same thing. After the trade, we both are better off and society is actually more prosperous. So that's why markets are good. They increase the sum total of wealth in society. And you want people to engage in this kind of activity. But it's n that's not always the story. In some cases, there's more that takes place, which is if I buy and sell with someone else, our activities might impose some costs on other people that are not part of the transaction, which we don't take into account. So an example would be people would like to have inexpensive linen shirts. And I have a factory where I can make the shirts and I would like to increase my financial wealth. I make the shirts, I sell them, the people get the shirts, they're better off. I get the income, I'm better off. But what's not taken into account is my factory burns coal. Coal goes up through the smokestack. It goes into the atmosphere and it falls down on the surrounding neighbor's land. And they have a cost that's not taken into account in our transaction. And that's often referred to as the social cost of private transactions. If I was to speak in economic terminology, the economists would call that a negative externality of the private transaction. Sometimes these spillover effects or social costs can be so large that the cost to society is actually larger than the gain that comes from the trade. And in cases like that, the argument goes, what happens is the private transactions are actually reducing social wealth and not increasing it. And if I understand the terminology correct, what that's described as, as a market failure. The market is failing to deliver something that's wealth enhancing. And in those cases, what we need is something to correct the market failure. And the argument is that you need governmental regulation to internalize these negative externalities or to deal with these social costs. And that's, for cases like that, that's why government regulation of the market is well justified. So that's my description of the argument. Now I'm going to suggest to you that there's a few problems with this argument, but to explain why, let me put on the screen something that depicts the relationship between the law and the market 
that this argument appears to be based on. The argument I just described views the marketplace as the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions. It's what people do when they're completely free from regulation. It views the law as the realm of regulation of voluntary transactions for the public good in the interest of the overall public. And the way the screen has it depicted, this sees the market and the law as completely separate realms. There's no overlap. The market is voluntary transactions, and then the law is the government coming in and regulating it. I think the problem with the argument is that this is an incorrect depiction of both the law and the market. And I'll try to explain why. So let me begin with the law. Like the law for in the 21st century, most of us conflate the law with legislation. <clears throat> legislation are the rules of law that are created by the political representatives, whether at the local, state, or federal level. People are elected, they go into Congress, they pass bills, the president signs it, and now you have a law. That's legislation. Right. Legislation is really part of our law, but it's not all of the law, and most people think of it as all of the law. Most of the law that makes our commercial society go was never legislated. We're a common law culture, and it came from a common law process. The rules of property law, the rules of contract law, the rules of commercial law, the rules of tort law, which I'll talk about today, even most of the rules of criminal law never came about through a legislative process. They evolved over time from the settlement of actual disputes. Um, the common law is called the common law because these were the customary laws of England as they were applied in the king's royal courts. And the, it's, it's accurate to say that this is customary law. I mean, common law is today usually identified with judge-made law. In the 20th and 21st century, that may not be that accurate, uh, inaccurate, but historically, that is inaccurate. It wasn't that judges made the law. It's that if a long line of cases were settled in the same way, then that represented the customary practice, and it was recognized by the courts. So traditionally, over the, in the formative period of the common law, where the rules under which we live now were actually developing, what was happening was experience was teaching people how to solve disputes in a way that allowed them to cooperate. And that's where the common law came from. Uh, this is evidenced by William Blackstone's <coughs> definition of the common law. He's the famous English commentator on the law. His definition of the common law was, is the quote, general customs which are the universal rule of the whole kingdom and form the common law in its stricter and more usual signification. So the common law, when I'm talking about the common law, that's case-generated law that arises from the settlement of actual disputes. It's law that evolves over time in response to what allows people to cooperate. And the common law is the law that's created, well, law that is a, a product of human action, but not a product of human design. Nobody consciously makes it. It comes about as a result of human interaction. But the main example that I'll talk about today is tort law. That's what I teach at Georgetown. Tort law is the law that governs stranger interactions when one party harms another in some way. And the basic rule of tort law is that if one party acts in a way that imposes an unconsented to harm on a third party, on another party, 
The injured party may bring a suit to recover damages, to obtain an object, uh, injunction to stop the activity, or both. And none of the rules of tort were enacted by legislatures. They evolved over time in response to what allowed people to live together peacefully. So that's actually the majority of our law. And tort law, still, if we can sue for assault, battery, negligence, trespass, nuisance, it covers all of the ways in which we can negatively affect each other. That's the majority of our law. Legislation is truly part of our law. Legislation is the part of our law that consists of general rules created by political representatives that apply to all citizens in a jurisdiction. Now, we, all of us that were properly educated in public schools in the United States, we were taught to understand why that's a good thing. We were taught this democratic theory. Legislators represent the will of the public and they enact measures designed to achieve the public good. We're taught that, but very few of us believe it anymore. No one who supports campaign finance legislation believes that democratic theory. Otherwise, they wouldn't be supporting campaign finance regulation. Most of us can remember the debates that took place over the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Anybody observing that would find it difficult to think that the individual legislators were simply trying to do what was going to be in the public interest rather than in the particular interest of his or her constituents. Those of you that are familiar with public choice, economics don't need me to try to convince you of this, and I wouldn't. But uh, one brief story to illustrate the true nature of legislation. Back in 1994, when the Republicans were taking over Congress, George Mitchell, then the Senate Majority Leader, was retiring. And he left office with perhaps the highest reputation for integrity of any politician in my lifetime. And when he was retiring, he did an interview on the radio, and the interviewer asked him a question, which was, if this is a tough job, you're here for long hours, you have to deal with all of these prickly personalities, and you know, what makes the job worthwhile? And he told a little story. And the story he told was the Clinton administration was going to issue an executive order to require the federal government to use only recycled paper. But he represented Maine, and Maine is where the paper mills are, and they make new paper. And if that regulation, if that executive order went through, it would affect his state negatively. And because he had this position of power, he was the Senate Majority Leader, he was able to kill the executive order. And then the story, he tells the story, he's back at Maine and he's giving a speech. And afterwards, a man comes rushing up to him. And at first, his bodyguards thought he was being attacked, but it wasn't that. This man came up and he had tears in his eyes and he wanted to shake George Mitchell's hands and he said how important it was to him and his well-being and his family that he could keep his job. And he just wanted to thank him for that. And George Mitchell finished the story by saying, it's that that makes the job worthwhile. Now, this is the politician that left office with the highest reputation for integrity of anyone, and he's telling you the truth. What he's telling you the truth is the purpose of having legislative power is to thwart the public good in order to protect your own particular parochial interest, which is exactly what that story tells. A realistic view of legislation is not regulation of voluntary transactions for the public good. It's regulation of voluntary transactions to serve whatever is the politically dominant interest. 
for good or for ill. So that, I think, is a more realistic way of depicting it. All right, that's my, re my recharacterization of the law. All right, let me try to recharacterize the market as well. All right, um, I understand I'm at Reason's headquarters. So I'm going to say this nevertheless. Right, there's no such thing as the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions. All right, that doesn't exist. Economists often will talk about the realm of unregulated voluntary transactions because they're doing some kind of theoretical um, reasoning. Physicists, physicists talk about perfect vacuums, but they don't think perfect vacuums exist. In the real world, we're human beings. We always function under some type of restraint. We always function under some type of regulation. The most powerful regulatory force in the real world is our ethical beliefs. Our religious beliefs and our ethical beliefs curtail the way we act towards others. It regulates our behavior. It's a powerful, important regulatory force. Perhaps equally important is the effect of common practices. In order to, to deal with other people in a way that is successful, we have to know what to expect of each other. And the common practices tell us what to expect. Um, when you take somebody from the Midwest, and you put him in another country where the, the practice is to bargain, and somebody gives him a price and he takes it, that person doesn't understand how to interact properly. So the nature of common practices also regulate how we interact with each other. In our system, in the Anglo-American legal system, civil liability, the common law, also regulates how we interact. And the last regulatory force is that legislation can regulate the market. There's always some form of regulation. Now, what can the term market mean in the real world? Not in the academic conception, but in the real world. If I want to use that term meaningfully, there's got to be some form of regulation, so I'll propose the following. I think the way to use the term market, when you're referring to a free market, it's the way human beings interact when they're free from political restraint, when they're free from governmental regulation. That means a the free market is the market in which we act with each other on the basis of constraints from our ethical beliefs, customary practices, and the common law. That's the free market. And then sometimes there's political regulation as well. So if I've done a good job of recharacterizing both of those, then I'll suggest that there's a different relationship between the law and the market. I've called this the real world conception because it's not the kind of argument that PhD economics, economists or political scientists make. But if we recharacterize things, then you want to see the market as the realm of voluntary transactions that are regulated by ethics, co um, common practices, custom, and civil liability, or the common law. What's the law? The law correctly understood is legislation, but legislation is regulation of voluntary transactions to serve the politically dominant interest, and also, besides legislation, it's the common law, civil liability. That's both part of the law. If you understand the law and the market the way I just described it, then they're not separate realms, and they overlap. And where they overlap is with regard to the common law. The common law is part of the law, but it's also part of the market, because it's part of the market's natural regulatory element. So 
if I used economic language again, I would say there's a regulatory force that's endogenous to the market. The market has its own built-in regulatory mechanism, and that's the common law or civil liability. Right, so given this, the next question would be, how effective is the market's own internal regulatory mechanism, tort law? Well, according to almost everyone today, it's too effective. We have a tort reform movement because businesses are complaining that civil liability is putting too much restriction on market activity. In, the, in 2000, when Ed Rendell, the present governor of Pennsylvania, was chair of the Democratic National Committee, he perhaps inadvertently told the truth in public when he was speaking to uh, a meeting of the plaintiff's bar trying to raise money for Al Gore, in which he said, quote, um, that trial lawyers paved the way for America's consumer safety advances. 80 to 90% of those safety advances came from litigation. What's protecting our safety? It's civil liability. If 80 to 90% of the regulation comes from civil liability, how much is left over as necessary for, for, to come from political branches? If most people, if, if we talk about tort law, they've only heard of one case. It's the McDonald's coffee cup case. <laughs> yeah. And they've heard of it as though that's a bad case or there's something aberrant about it. Let me tell you about the McDonald's coffee cup case. McDonald's served coffee at 185 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, coffee will cause third-degree burns on a human, on human skin within two to seven seconds. Too quickly for you to get it off your clothes or wipe it off. McDonald's had been sued 700 times by people who'd been burned by the coffee. Not people who spilled it on themselves. Sometimes it was spilled on them by McDonald's employees. They knew about the danger. They didn't change it. One day, a woman came up. Her, her son was driving, gave her a cup of coffee. She opened it in a foolish way and spilled it on her lap and suffered third-degree burns. When this came to trial, her lawyer presented the facts to the jury and said, you've got to tell McDonald's that they can't keep endangering the public this way. And he suggested that the jury give his client punitive damages equal to two days' worth of profits that McDonald's makes serving coffee. And the jury did that. The next day, as I was driving into Georgetown, on the radio, there was a report that pointed out that every single fast food restaurant in the United States now served coffee at 157 degrees centigrade Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, it takes 60 seconds to cause third-degree burns. The entire population of the country was now safe from this kind of injury because of one little old lady's tort suit. You may argue that that's too much regulation. What you can't argue is that it's not enough. Right? The internal regulatory mechanism of the common law, the tort system, is providing a great deal of regulation. Uh, so much regulation that people sometimes think that we have too much. So given that, let me revisit the market failure argument with which I started. I'll submit to you now that the way I described it at first makes no sense. It could make sense. But for the market failure argument to make sense, it would have to be something like this. When people transacting business in the real world market, that's the market in which they are restrained by ethical beliefs, common practices, and civil liability and the common law. 
when in that world, in that market, there nevertheless are some spillover effects or social costs that aren't already taken care of, then you would need government regulation to deal with those kind of spillover effects. But when you see it that way, the question that comes to mind is, what's an example of that? It's hard to find examples of uninternalized negative externalities when you take into account the effect of tort law. I guess I can leave it to you to come up with some. But let me end with an illustration. And the illustration is the BP case that uh, BP spilled a lot of oil in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago. BP was vilified for this. What caused the oil spill? Was that a market failure or was it something else? All right, I'm going to, let me talk to you a little bit about BP. BP, in a market, couldn't be drilling at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. It was a, drilling a mile deep. At that level, the risk of a spill, you can't get down to do anything about it. The risk of the spill was so great that you would have virtually unlimited civil liability. You'd be on the hook for billions and billions of dollars. And as a result, market, the market with civil liability discouraged anyone from drilling at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. The internal regulatory mechanism would not permit that to take place because the activity was unreasonably risky. So how could BP be drilling there? The federal government divided up the floor of the Gulf of Mexico into oil leases, and then it tried to encourage companies to pay it the right to drill oil there. But of course, companies won't buy oil leases if they can't get insurance. They can't buy oil leases to do something that subjects them to unlimited liability. It's unreasonably dangerous. So the next thing you have to do if the federal government wants to make money is cap liability. And the federal government did that in, in 1990 with the Oil Pollution Act. You can see up there that the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 says that the upper limit of civil liability for oil spills is $75 million. Well, that's something that big oil companies can handle. Now, it makes economic sense for them to be drilling at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Of course, the federal government said, don't worry about it because we'll replace civil liability, the common law regulation, with political regulation. And so they gave us the Minerals Management Service as the regulatory agency. Yeah, you're smiling because you remember that group, right? They were getting a lot of dinners bought for them by the oil company, and not just dinners, some other less reputable things. The agency was completely captured by the industry that was supposed to regulate it, and in fact, the regulatory body had signed off on all of the, I guess, dangerous techniques that BP was using. So the comparative assessment here is between the kind of regulation you get on the market, civil liability, which would have meant so that there couldn't be an oil spill because businesses can't afford to engage in this unreasonably risky behavior, and regulation from the political branches, which legislation is law that serves a politically dominant interest. And in the Gulf states, the oil interest is a pretty powerful interest, and they wanted a liability cap. They got it, and the result was the BP oil spill. So there's a comparative assessment for you to make. I'll submit that. The market itself has a built-in regulatory mechanism that is very, very powerful, not subject to political manipulation, 
and serves the purpose perhaps better than the kind of regulation you get out of the political agencies. Thanks. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use my special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by visiting patreon.com forward slash EVC or paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Thank you. Thank you.